This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hello, and welcome to The Waves for Thursday, February 27th, the Love in a Pod edition. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate and host of the Slate podcast, Outward. I'm Marcia Chatlin, a professor of history at Georgetown University. I'm Nicole Perkins, writer and co-host of Thirst Aid Kit. And I'm June Thomas, senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. Uh, before we get started for this week's episode, I wanted to thank everybody who wrote in to us about our segment on alcohol. We got a ton of responses, more than usual, and it was really great to hear so many different perspectives. There was one listener who really loved Holly Whitaker's book, Quit Like a Woman. Someone else recommended an article in The Atlantic, said it changed their life. The article is called The Irrationality of Alcoholics Anonymous. There were also a couple listeners who found AA groups that worked for them. And one thought Whitaker's piece was a straw man takedown. So it was great to hear that pushback, too. So thank you again to all our listeners who responded to that segment. We have some great topics lined up for this week. First up is the Harvey Weinstein verdict. We're going to talk about the charges he was convicted on, the charges he was acquitted of, and what it all means. Then we're going to review Love is Blind, a truly bonkers new Netflix dating show. And finally, we have a special guest, the artist and author Tatiana Fazlalazadeh. We're going to talk to her about her new book, Stop Telling Women to Smile, which chronicles her ongoing portrait project about street harassment. And Marsha, what is our Slate Plus segment this week? Our Slate Plus segment comes from a listener who asks, is it sexist when women are described as helpful? That is going to be a great conversation. Uh, some of us will have to refrain from bringing our own personal lives into it. Some <laughs> of us certainly will bring our own personal experiences into it. Here's a snippet of that conversation. I'm very curious what Marsha thinks about this. Yeah. I hate the <laughs> word helpful. I hate <laughs> the expression good citizen. I I hear what the the listener is talking about because helpful in most work contexts is not seen as a quality that then I think contributes to wanting to elevate that person. If you're not a Slate Plus member yet and you want to know whether it's sexist to compliment women by saying they're helpful, you can start your free two-week trial by visiting slate.com slash thewavesplus. All right, Harvey Weinstein. On Monday morning of this week, the Manhattan jury in Harvey Weinstein's sexual assault trial returned a verdict. Five charges had been brought against him, primarily related to the sexual assaults of two women, Miriam Haley and Jessica Mann. The jury found him guilty of two of them, criminal sexual act in the first degree and rape in the third degree. I think for a lot of people, this was actually a surprise. I mean, despite the fact that he has sort of been the, you know, most wanted poster of the Me Too movement there were whispers that possibly, you know, based on what the defense was doing and how the jury was reacting, there might be a not guilty verdict across the board. So, you know, this was a possibly unexpected for some people. But the verdict was also mixed. So the jury acquitted Weinstein of rape in the first degree. That charge requires uh, forcible compulsion. So the jury presumably decided that man's rape didn't involve force or threats. And the jury also acquitted Weinstein of two counts of predatory sexual assault, which were the most serious charges that prosecutors brought against him that could have earned him a life sentence in prison. 
So to be guilty of predatory sexual assault, just a sort of recap for those of you who've been following but might not know what these terms mean, Weinstein would have had to have committed a second first-degree sex crime. So to try to prove that, the prosecutors brought in Annabella Sciorra, who said that Weinstein raped her in the winter of 1993 or 1994. She was one of the first and most prominent people who came forward to say Harvey Weinstein had raped her. She told Ronan Farrow that in fall of 2017. So the statute of limitations were up in her case, but if the jury believed her story, they could have used that rape to boost one of the other charges up to predatory sexual assault. So by finding Harvey Weinstein not guilty of that, the jury was saying that they didn't believe that she was a victim of first-degree rape. I have thoughts on that, but uh, first I want to know, what were your reactions to the verdict? Is there a greater meaning here? And can it be read as uh, sort of an indication of what the Me Too movement has or hasn't accomplished? Yeah, this one's (laughs) a hard one. Um, Because... Jury decisions are both reflective of how people filter information from a larger culture plus the information that they get at trial. And mm-hmm. I'm incredibly curious about the logic of um, you know, deeming him guilty of some things and not others. But I think that this what I really appreciated in the New York Times piece where they had different people weigh in on what this means, it helps break this idea that the court system is actually a place that delivers justice or delivers closure or delivers any kind of final note on social problems. So a number of people said, okay, but if we think about the scope of accusations against Harvey Weinstein, like the fact that two were able to emerge is a reminder of how difficult it is for women to make these claims. And I think that in moments like this, the question of whether a jail sentence actually provides anything for survivors or for the larger society, I think is an important Mm -hmm. and provocative one. So I was actually, I am curious if the way that he was found guilty is reflective of some of the performance of weakness that he did mm. during the trial where the jury was thinking, yeah, this guy's a pretty bad guy, but he's kind of weak. So let's find him guilty of some things and not all things. I'm, I, I'd be really mm. curious to think about through how the jury deliberated on this. Yeah. I was interested to see in the response to the verdict that, you know, sometimes when when news happens, your reaction seems to be reflected in the coverage. And that really felt like a case here, because I think even your headline and your piece, Christina, was something like some good, some bad, you know, which which yeah. is, you know, maybe banal, but also is really was how I felt it was like, OK, this is going to be a benchmark case. This is like a guy against whom there are so many accusations, very credible accusations with a clear pattern, people who, you know, cannot be uh, accused of being in it for the money or whatever those nasty, ridiculous things people say about other accusers. And so to have like, so, okay, some of it, he, he was found guilty on some charges. It wasn't completely dismissed. We've gotten somewhere, but also some charges were dismissed or were, you know, Annabella Shore was apparently considered to be a liar or was not considered credible. So there are things which are certainly not hopeful, but it gives us a sense of where we are and that feels useful. I can't believe I'm just kind of saying these things, but at the same time, like that really does feel very significant, which is kind of crazy. As someone who will try to look at, you know, for the bright side, if there is one in a situation like this, that it is possible that there can be um, a little bit of justice, if we want to call it that, served at some point. And I think Marsha brought up Weinstein's weakness or his perceived weakness since the trial began. And I would wonder if it kind of worked opposite of what he thought it would you know that people are just kind Mm. of like but we have decades of history of you being this most powerful man and now all of a sudden you're coming in kind of bent over hobbling you need assistance to walk in what what kind of game are you playing so I wonder if that kind of worked a little bit against him um, and not the way that he thought it would at least for I'm sure some of the jurors or whoever you know made these decisions yeah I it's also hard to know exactly what 
the jury's perception of the Me Too mm-hmm, movement was mm-hmm. going into it. And I know it's it's a little bit uh, erroneous to think about this case as like a referendum on the Me Too mm-hmm. movement. But the Harvey Weinstein's lead attorney, Donna Rotuno, has spent the past several months going around in the media making it a referendum mm-hmm. on the Me Too movement and saying the Me Too movement has gone too far, which, you know, she she was really trying to say that what Harvey Weinstein did to these women based on the fact that, you know, they continued to have friendly correspondence with him afterwards and whatever was not rape. It wasn't, you know, like tender, loving, like making love, but it was consensual transactional sex. And so she was basically trying to say that even the person who kicked off the Me Too movement didn't belong uh, under the purview of this movement of, you know, trying to address the scourge of sexual assault and sexual exploitation. But this is why Shiora's case and the not guilty verdicts on predatory sexual assault were such a sticking point for me because I keep thinking about what Shiora said when she first came forward. And she did so reluctantly. She wasn't in like the first wave of people who came out but she was angry that people were downplaying other allegations of abuse, particularly Asia Argento's. You know, people were saying, oh, well, you know, that not necessarily rape. It, it doesn't sound that bad. And, and maybe you had a relationship with him after. So what actually was it? And she literally said to Ronan Farrow, you want rape? Here's fucking rape. Even that wasn't enough mm-hmm. to convict Weinstein on those more serious charges. The jury listened to six women tell their stories in court, and they still had doubts about this story. So it, it A, makes me question, you know, how many women's stories do you need to outweigh a man's? When is a woman's testimony considered evidence on par with, you know, his testimony? Um, or, you know, he didn't actually testify in this case, but the, you know, the story that was put forward by his attorneys. and. I think the Shiora's case actually speaks to the one of the core lessons of the Me Too movement. And I did write about this in my piece, so apologies to people who have already <laughs> read it. But, you know, she said she didn't think it was rape at the mm. time. Mm. And something that I took away from the Me Too movement and that I think was one of the most powerful things that people did when they were coming forward with their stories was saying— just because someone didn't consider it rape at the time doesn't mean it wasn't. That there are so many reasons why somebody might not consider it rape. Because we have a very narrow definition of sexual assault that benefits perpetrators of mm-hmm. sexual assault. Mm-hmm. You know, feeling like, well, it's not rape if, if you know, because I wanted to preserve the sense that I'm a strong person who wasn't victimized, I was nice to him afterwards. Or I just sort of froze and, and didn't fight until I was incapacitated. Or, you know, know, I if I believe it was rape, then I'm going to have to risk my family or my community or my career. So I'm just going to tell myself it was like bad sex and or a bad decision or I regret it or something and move on. And the Me Too movement said it's okay to reclassify mm-hmm. it later, that you weren't lying to yourself about what happened. You're not rewriting the past. You're just bringing new knowledge to what happened. And the jury rejected that, I think, when when they gave that not guilty verdict. I think, again, I think this is one of those places where we're kind of seeing where the rest of the world is or, you know, what the general overall feel of what's going on is. This was a a trial over old allegations. Something that you said in your introduction to this segment is very relevant. The date of Siora's rape is she doesn't remember what exactly what year it was. And that Mm -hmm. is apparently something that that the larger world is not ready to deal with. You know, they want precision. They want you know, they want a, a clearer story. What you just said seems so reasonable to me and so like that's how humans work. But apparently juries are not ready to deal with that yet. And I think that comes from we also read uh, a piece about how fiction can help us deal with these kinds of stories. And I think part of that comes from the way that we have fictionalized assault cases and domestic violence and things like that where people feel like they, you know, I remember this day is embedded. I remember every single thing. And that's not always the case. Mm -hmm. Our bodies, our minds will do all kinds of things to try to keep us safe uh, after the fact, you know. And so sometimes we lose the memories. We lose the precision. We lose the, you know, exactly what we are wearing or whatever, things like that. Um, And we have to be reminded from other circumstances. So it's uh, those fictionalized accounts can 
be helpful because some people are just like, no, that's too ridiculous to be real and they need the fiction in order to understand mm-hmm. it. And then it's also harmful because people think, well, obviously this is what I saw from these movies from the 80s or 90s or whatever. Or that's SVU, really, yeah. yeah, that's really how it should be. Uh, and so it's all just a big jumble when we're trying to get to the actual truth of the matter. I think that we are stuck in this cultural moment as the Me Too movement articulates itself with more and more nuance in these cases of not just kind of how people are supposed to react or what people are supposed to do when they're sexually assaulted, but a narrative. um, If a person demonstrates the capacity to fuel their experience into rage or a desire for accountability, it becomes women are trying to ruin men's lives. Mm-hmm. And unless there's a deep performance of sexual assault has ruined my entire life, I don't think it's legible, the complexities. And so this is why, you know, the fact that a lot of these women continue to have professional relationships with Harvey Weinstein, that, you know, that can't be understood because I think that if people were really, really, really conscientious and attentive to those facts, then they see the places in their own lives where they are made vulnerable or victimized or abused. And what do you do with that information? And so I think that there's a deep cultural investment in flattening all of these experiences as much as possible because of the larger reckoning that people are unprepared for. And that's why I really, really appreciated, you know, people like Ashley Judd saying, okay, I guess we're supposed to be happy about this, <laughs> but this is bullshit. You know, and I think mm-hmm. she she was really clear, like the the faults in this, because I think that there's a way that um, it's kind of like the Cosby thing. It's like, well, how many years does a person go unchecked and is a known quantity before there's real action. And so the idea that you celebrate the last moment of accountability versus reflect on how it could get so bad, Mm -hmm. I think is a really, um, it's a seductive premise that we can pretend that this is where the story ends. But, you know, if you, we read Catch and Kill, so many people were aware of what he was doing Mm -hmm. and it was so organized that it's really chilling to think of all of the other people who don't have to be held accountable for watching this happen and enabling it. Yeah. And I just think also about the damage to public discourse that has even been done over the course of this trial. When I think about how much press his defense Mm -hmm. attorney's arguments have been Mm -hmm. given, the idea that, you know, it was these women's fault that they went to a hotel room and what were they expecting? And, you know, how they were leading him on by, you know, sending him texts after the fact. I just think about all the people who weren't on the jury, but who might be on a jury in the future Mm -hmm. or who might have somebody come to them with an allegation in the future, you know, uh, somebody who works for them and who have heard these arguments over and over again, as we've heard for, you know, generations about sexual assault victims, but not always with, you know, uh, a sort of stereotypical villain like Harvey Weinstein, you know, hearing those same arguments used to defend him. And that has been you know, at the forefront of our discussion about Harvey Weinstein for the past couple months that he's been on trial. And I wonder how much effect that's having on people who didn't necessarily make a decision in this case, but are still absorbing all of the same messages that the jury did. Yeah, I wonder also what's going to happen to the people who have been using Harvey Weinstein as as kind of like their scapegoat, because, you know, when they're talking about things like Bill Cosby or R. Kelly or, you know, people like that, they're kind of like, why are you going after, you know, these people so hard and not Harvey Weinstein? Well, now we have we've gone after him and he's guilty. So now what? Like, who's going to be the next person that they hold up as the reason why justice is not fair or something Mm -hmm. like that? I mean, it's still not fair in this case, but as fair as we would like it to be. But it's still just like there's always this one person that, you know, these people who just refuse to believe women or refuse to believe the fact of sexual assault, period, that it happens. There's always someone that they hold up like, well, you know, he got away with it. Why can't so-and-so get away with it? And now who are, who's going to be the person to hold up as the model for who gets away with these crimes? That's about all the time we have for this verdict. 
Listeners, let us know what you thought of it. Does this feel like a win? You can email us at thewaves at slate.com. All right. Love is Blind is a new dating show on Netflix. The premise (laughs) is insane. Nicole, please explain it to us. Oh, boy. Okay. So on Love is Blind, it's a reality TV dating show on Netflix. And uh, you have 15 men and women who are basically speed dating each other until they realize that they found the person that they want to marry uh, sight unseen. They don't see each other. They're all, they're all in these different pods and they rotate in and out of these pods talking to each <laughs> other. Um, and then they decide, you know what? I love you. I want to marry you. Will you marry me? And they oh, and also, can I see you now? Right, right. All within five days. And within five days. And so they say, yes, I'll marry you. They <laughs> finally meet. And then they go off to uh, Mexican retreats together so that they can see if the physical component is as great as the emotional connection that they have. And from there, the engaged couples move into the same complex together. And then they are supposed to walk down the aisle within four weeks uh, of all of this happening. And so we end up with six couples that do get engaged, sight unseen. Because the purpose, again, love is blind. We're supposed to just focus on your personality and what we get to know about you through these different pods. And it's interesting because although, you know, we're trying to show that love can grow out of not seeing each other, everyone here is very reality TV fit, mm-hmm. right? Everyone is slim. The men do push-ups in between dating, you know, before go- going into the pods. The men are very cut. The women are in bodycon dresses and they have beautiful long lashes, long hair. Everyone is just, you know, perfectly made for television. Um, there are very few fat bodies. There are, I didn't see if anyone was disabled or if anyone identified as being disabled. Even though the couples all live in Atlanta, there were very few people of color <laughs> um, here, uh, part of the couples. It was just really interesting to see the demographics of the people, but it was also just a very sad and ridiculous <laughs> <laughs> series to me it it really it brought me down I skipped mm-hmm. uh three episodes because I just could not handle the embarrassment that I felt for these people I was cringing throughout I felt just sad for everybody that you know that this is what we do to find love um or to find fame or to find fame yes because mm-hmm. a lot of the people let's talk about their jobs several of these people are <laughs> content creators um social media marketing people they they have uh, one woman identifies as a solopreneur which is some kind of <laughs> I, I don't know, soul entrepreneur, I, whatever that means. Yeah. So there's just a lot of, you know, let me get my brand out there kind of thing. And then there's one person who's just identified as regional manager. Yes. Um, <laughs> one person what? is just a what scientist. In what region? <laughs> so we end up with six couples at first. And then one couple quits. They make it to the Mexican resort when they have a falling out because it turns out that he is bisexual and he did not reveal that he was bisexual during the getting to know you part. It wasn't until they were face to face and, you know, things were about to possibly escalate to a physical level that he decided to come clean. And this is a gentleman named Carlton and the woman, her name is Diamond. And they are also the only black couple And they have this huge falling out that ends with Diamond quoting fucking Beyonce lyrics at him and Carlton cussing her out and telling her that her wig is sliding off and has been sliding off since day one. And I'm just like, really, this is the only example of, you know, black love, right? The the only example of black love, quote unquote, that you have here. And they end up like this. That's. Okay, whatever. So then we end up with five couples, two interracial couples. We have Cameron and Lauren. Lauren is a black woman. Cameron is a white man. Then we have Jessica and Mark. Mark is uh, Mexican from Chicago. And Jessica is an older lady. She's 34. He's 24. An older lady. Older? I'm I'm saying older, that because she's that's how she continues to right. press yeah. us. Yes, she portrays yes, she, you know, she keeps talking about, you know, there's 10 year age difference and whatever. Um, so she keeps, 
you know, making it seem like she is like, you know, on her last egg <laughs> or something. And she is not. <laughs> she is not. And I want to come back to Jessica because Jessica reminds me of the things that we've talked about when we, we've talked about women and alcohol and how, you know, maybe there the rising uh, issues with women and alcohol dependency that we kind of cover, you know, with just social drinking or, you know, wine moms or whatever. It seems like. Jessica would be one of those women who would buy the T-shirts that says, you know, more wine and cheese, hold the cheese kind of thing, Mm -hmm. because she gets drunk several times throughout the series to the point that she causes significant drama. And it was a little concerning for Mm -hmm. me watching her. And it also makes me think about reality TV as a whole and the way that they use alcohol as a drama lubricant. And I wonder if there is a way that we could... Talk about that without it seeming like we're shaming anyone or trying to be prudes about it or whatever. But I think it can be a, a concern to see the way these people use alcohol to launch their real feelings mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and end up causing a lot of a lot of drama. This show is <laughs> I love television. I love reality television. I was telling June before the show that I'm willing to wake up at five in the morning just to watch TV because <laughs> I care about it. <laughs> the way people talk about exercising. I tried to avoid watching this show <laughs> because I was so uncomfortable with the conversations that I was reading about it. And watching sorry, not it, sorry. <laughs> watching it just, it's so... Watching people try to get to know each other in a dating context is painful, not because the people are terrible, it's because we're all terrible. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've all had these like really ridiculous superficial conversations in the deep place where we want to connect with someone. So these people are doing the dating small talk in the beginning of the show. But because their relationships are heightened, not only because they're on a television show, by episode five, there's like fights about sex and then there's like family conflict and this, these hyper accelerated experiments in time and intimacy are really fascinating because what you realize is that even if these people weren't on this television show, this is probably their dating behavior anyway. And Mm -hmm. I don't know how you're supposed to feel about that or how we're supposed to feel about ourselves. But I think the point about alcohol is really important because if you read articles from people who've been on like shows like The Real World or The Bachelor, they talk about the fact that sometimes food is hard to find, but alcohol is an incredible abundance. And at the same time, I'm not entirely sure if this was happening in their real lives, if alcohol would play a similar role Mm -hmm. in helping reduce their anxiety in the kind of bid to try to feel close to people. And it's so depressing. Yeah. It's so depressing. It's, it's, I was fascinated by the premise of the show because, you know, in a superficial way, it's quite appealing. I mean, don't we all want to make a connection based on personality, based on interest, based on true connection rather than all the superficial things? Well, yeah. No, well, I want to be well, attracted exactly, to Exactly, exactly. Oh, that's the thing. Like, we're told somehow that that is appropriate, but it's not. Like, that is, if you're, if you're talking about, um, well, they, they're so fixated on weddings and marriages and and all of that but like if you're looking for a relationship not a friendship yeah you do want to fancy them you do want to like enjoy having sex with them like that is a reasonable thing and just the performance of dating it's like the whole thing felt like a rebel wilson movie you know where like (laughs) it's not about the and like it's it is actually it is and I, I, you know, I, I could have been on one of those shows. Like, I never felt like I was really, I was terrible at dating and I was always feeling like I was doing it wrong. And I, so I, I can see the appeal of it and I can, I absolutely understand that. No, I want to find someone. I, I understand that desire, that need, but like, don't do this, people. Don't go on an experiment on television. I get it. You're not, maybe you're not going for love, but you're going to, to become a known person. To be, I don't know if it's fame exactly, but it's not, this is not a good way to, to find your happily ever after. I agree. <laughs> so I, this show took me on a roller coaster <laughs> of emotions. At first, I was completely bewildered that 
the producers would decide to have everyone be hot. Yeah, yeah. Because it makes for a much less interesting show when the big reveal is, oh, we're both yeah. hot. Like, <laughs> the, wouldn't it be much more interesting if somebody fell in love, uh, if you can call it that, within five days with somebody who actually wasn't what they thought was hot? But everybody's hot. That would be so cruel, though. I mean, I guess. But if you're making a TV show. Oh, I know. Why wouldn't why wouldn't you want that extra drama instead of just yeah. I mean, I guess there's two competing interests. One is that sex sells and everybody likes watching hot people hook up. But the other one is like, then what's the point of having everyone mm-hmm. behind? Mm-hmm. And, and even when they can tell each other, well, I'm five, four, <laughs> you know, you well that you've just sort of ruined the point. Then I was like, <laughs> huh, I was a little bit intrigued. I was like, maybe this is actually a good idea in that it's getting all it's like a dating service for people who just want to get yep. married at yep. all costs. Mm-hmm. And that sort of takes away a lot of the uncertainty that a lot of my friends who are on dating apps feel where like you're never sure whether somebody just you're never sure at mm-hmm. first whether somebody is just looking for a hookup and that's why they're using the app or whether they're looking for somebody to date because they want to get married and have kids and whatever. So I was like, huh. And, you know, arranged marriages have occasionally worked. I'm like, maybe this is sort of like getting back to basics here, <laughs> like tale as old as time. Then it made me mad in the in first in a conservative sort of way where I'm like, what about the sanctity of marriage? I felt betrayed by Nick Lachey that he would lend his, his cultural brand. capital to this show. And and I was like, you know, fuck these straight people. I couldn't even do this six mm-hmm. years ago. And you guys are coming into a room acting like you're ready to get married in five days. And I couldn't do that to like m- my life partner. Like, fuck you. And you're cheapening of the sanctity <laughs> of marriage. And then it just made me sad. Like, you, Nicole, I was like, the more I listen to these people talk about sort of using marriage as an emotional shorthand or like a narrative shortcut for actual feelings and relationships and commitment mm-hmm. and and hearing these women say things like oh, I'm I have a fiance I'm going to be a married woman like Ugh. completely divorced from the actual person that they were doing those things with like they were just excited by the fact that they were going to be married and you know hearing these women be swayed by men saying they love them just because they were like oh, no one's ever said that to me before. No one's ever said they wanted to marry me before. So now I think I like him. You know, it's. I understand that this is a show and possibly I'm taking it too seriously, but I think it actually does map onto a real dynamic in the non-reality 100%. which is that women feel pressured to get married, worthless if they don't. I'm generalizing here, but like this is an actual social dynamic and cultural conditioning that exists in the real world. And so it made me really sad to think, like somebody recently said on this podcast, like this actually probably isn't too different from the way these people date in the real world, where there's a desire to have those, you know, deep emotional connections, maybe without even any substance under it, but it just feels good to have somebody say, I love you. I've never felt this connection with someone before. But at the end, and this is where my roller coaster (laughs) ends, I was really, really bored because it there's no actual relationships happening or you're, you're not actually getting to know the people as people. And so I had absolutely no investment in any of the people or any of the relationships. And I just felt like I was turning on the TV to hear a list of platitudes about, you know, finding yourself and finding love. And like, I was just browsing through an Etsy site with like different sayings on mugs about how much you love somebody. So I couldn't bring myself to finish the season. I think I like watched five episodes last night. And now I'm just mad, sad, bored and enraged about <laughs> but what a journey. Yeah. <laughs> <But> what? <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. It did make me feel something. So I guess that's a plus. By the time uh, this episode airs, the season finale will have launched, I guess, and we'll find out who actually says yes and gets married. But I think it's like what you were saying, Christina, it just it made me so sad because it it really emphasized how damaged everyone is when it comes to looking for love, because there Yes, there were women that were just like, oh, my God, he said my name. And I was like, "Okay, (laughs) has no one ever said your name before? Like, why is this something that you fall in love over? Like, what? Um, And, you know, there's there's another couple, uh, Kelly and Kenny. 
they did not consummate their relationship before walking down the aisle. And Kenny had problems with that. And Kelly was just like, oh, it's because, you know, I want to make sure we have any an emotional connection because it's very difficult for me to climax without emotional connection. And of course, he's going to be like, okay, sure, I, I'll follow your lead because he doesn't want to be seen on international television pressuring a woman to have sex with him when she doesn't feel like it. But then later at the um, bachelorette party, she reveals to her friends that she is not physically attracted to him. So I'm like, oh my God, I would hate to (sighs) see that. You know, if I were him or anybody, you know, just watching to be told one thing and then you find out that it was actually maybe something else going on and you have to learn about that with millions of other people, you know, while you have tried to respect her boundaries and but you just found out that she just doesn't think you're cute or whatever. So stuff like that is really bothersome for me because, you know, they're trying to say, oh, this is just, again, we're trying to have emotional connections and bonds and learn about each other and all this kind of stuff. And you've been lying about this. I mean, obviously, I think everybody has been lying yeah. throughout this whole the show. Well, the whole, the whole <laughs> setup of the show of like, there's 15 men, there's 15 women. And you know that they're, you know, it's a it's going to be a triangle. There's going to have fewer and fewer people by the end. And so the motivations you know, to say, oh, yeah, I made a connection. Yeah, I'm going to the next level. Like, you, it's it's self-selecting. Although apparently there yeah. were two couples who decided to get married and they said, well, you know, have a nice time. We don't have any more room for any more couples. So yeah. they were, they they had to do their thing off, off uh, camera, which like <laughs> so sad. But, you know, what, how could you possibly, you know, everything is structured against honesty, against the apparent premise of the, I love how they keep calling it the experiment. I mean, mm-hmm. it just cannot yeah. be. But June, didn't you say before we started recording that you love this show and you're going to continue watching? <laughs> well, I, I t- because for various reasons, I wasn't able to watch that many episodes. So I still have some curiosity left in me. Um, <laughs> but I, I feel like, I, you know, I know where it's going. I don't think there's going to be any surprises. Um, so, yeah. I'm going to say one thing in defense of these people and the terrible things about them. Because you love The Bachelor, right, Marsha? I love The Bachelor and I hate The Bachelor. I watch it (laughs) and I kind of hate myself for it because I think it's I think it's fascinating what people deem as intimacy in these settings because they've never been through anything with each other. There's a lot of disclosure. And I think there was an interesting section of, I don't remember any of their names on this show, where a woman talks about her experience of choosing to have an abortion. Amber. Amber. And her disclosing this and talking about the feelings of it, part of me felt like, oh, this experiment isn't about the other person. It's this idea that people can just express themselves mm. in this pod. Um, and the conceit is that you will always get positive regard from the other person on the other side of the pod because this is supposed to be about depth and not superficiality. So I thought there were some really interesting moments, but this is what I will say. As someone who may have gotten married to someone that I did not know for a full year before we got married, (laughs) and someone who... Yeah, I know. Um, Who may have gotten engaged maybe three or four months into a relationship. This is what I will say. There are people, myself included, who make commitments and then the commitment grounds them in the day-to-day of their relationships. I may be one of those people. There are other people (laughs) who have a set of experiences that help them discern whether they want to make a commitment. I think that there's values in both approach. But I think what this show reveals is this idea that when people are ready for marriage or ready for settling down, there's a shift in their sensibility and they just kind of commit. I'm not entirely sure how I feel about that either, but I do relate to the fact that these people really do believe that you can like fast forward to the commitment part. But I think it does have some real like liabilities with it. That's all I'll say. And see, I I love romances. I believe in love at first sight. I, 
you know, read these novels where people fall in love within five <laughs> days, you know, of these heightened circumstances where they're, you know, trekking down a spy together or something. I don't know. I Is that what happened with you? <laughs> <laughs> I believe exactly. all of that. I can suspend my disbelief to deal with that. But in this situation, it is very difficult for me to, I guess, because you see these conversations and they're very awkward and they're very surface, even when they're saying something as deep as, you know, revealing that a father abandoned them or something like that. It's still very like what Marsha just said, that we're the person listening is just supposed to respond in a positive manner Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you're just supposed to go on, you know, go on and just kind of comfort them. And it really... It seems like this was people falling in love with a therapist, Mm -hmm, maybe, mm -hmm. you know, we're giving them permission to fall in love with a a, a therapist. So Uh, it's transference, not love. Yes, yes. And it's like, it's really weird because, you know, Jessica, she's, oh, she bothered me so much. (laughs) Um, Jessica, at one point, she kind of like pulled back from her relationship with Mark and so what he did to fix it was he he recreated a pod situation where he was in one room and she went into another room like he built like this little picnic for both of them in each room and she was just talking to him through a wall and then she was like I've never felt closer to you what <laughs> what come on good television to come. oh my good gosh television. it just frustrates me so much and it just I wish that we did not make women feel like this is their only accomplishment that they that they can, you know, get credit for is finding uh, a spouse. And that their everyone's standards are so low. Like, they all are like, <laughs> I just want someone who accepts me. I'm like, that's your <laughs> that's your benchmark is someone who just like doesn't reject you and is like okay with you. Oh God, it's so depressing. Yeah. And here's the one piece of advice for the couples on the show who are, I'm sure are listening to our <laughs> podcast. All of them. As someone who had a very, very romantic meeting and quick marriage, I will say this. The real test of it is the fact that your romance story becomes secondary to the kind of like real joy you find in the substance of the relationship. And that's what always makes me nervous for people who are on these shows because you have a stylist, Mm -hmm. because you have producers Mm -hmm. helping to navigate your relationship. You go to these incredible vacations. And so any relationship that really relies heavily on the romance story rather than the ability to actually grow away from that story is something that I always think is interesting when these shows actually have couples that quote unquote make it. I'm always curious if they use the like novel nature of how they met and how they got married and the TV show to fill in the kind of moments that are unhappy or actually really hard in a relationship. Thank you for that advice, Marsha. I hope that all of the Love is Blind couples are listening together. And yeah, listeners, if you have watched this show or were on it, man, would I love to hear your thoughts on this, especially if you really liked it, especially if you two met your partner in a pod. Uh, You can email us at thewaves at slate.com. All right. If you watched season one of Netflix's reboot of Spike Lee's She's Gotta Have It, you will have seen Tatiana Faslalizadeh's art. Her work stood in for lead character Nola Darlings, both in her studio and in an anti-street harassment campaign that Nola pursued on the show. That storyline was inspired by Tatiana's own cultural work focused on combating street harassment. And earlier this month, Seal Press published a book, Stop Telling Women to Smile, which features her amazing portraits and street art and in which she talks to other women about their experiences with street harassment. She's here with us today to talk about Stop Telling Women to Smile. Welcome, Tatiana. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. So I'd like to begin by just talking about the posters. Like the art is really striking. How did you come up with this particular approach, the style of portraiture and the kind of text that you use? And maybe you could also describe that for people who might not be quite as familiar with the work. Sure. So the work itself features black and white portraits of women in non-binary films. Um, The work is 
done with graphite pencil on paper. I do them very simply in my sketchbook. I then scan those and blow them up really large to put out in the street. And along with the portraits are text. And the text is speaking directly to harassers. So it's usually a sentence that I take from the conversation that I have with the woman. And I ask them very directly, what do you want to say to harassers in the street? And so usually the text is something of that nature. And it's paired with the graphite drawing. And, you know, I came to that from simply being a portrait artist. I've always drawn people, painted people, been very interested in the form and the figure and people's faces. And so I didn't want to sort of abandon that when I decided to create a project that was going to be out in the street. You know, I thought a lot about just using the text or just using photographs, but I really wanted to keep that drawn hand, this hand created portrait element of it. And and so that's how I got to what it is now. I also just now really love the idea of it being these really black and white, these black and white images that are on outdoor walls, which mm-hmm. are usually color and have texture. And I just really sort of love the aesthetic of that. So that's how I got to that. There's something really striking though about the style of, maybe it's the pose. I don't know if that's, if, if you're okay with that term. I mean, there, because Maybe we're used to seeing portraits, maybe mostly in photographs, as being women smiling. And these are women really being serious because they're they're confronting the harassers. As you say, the text is addressed to harassers. Have you ever gotten pushback about, you know, the, this very powerful, quite serious style of, you know, just the way that the women are presenting themselves? I have actually, yes. Um, I, I've done a couple of murals with through this work, through the project, and I've had people talk to me later and say, you know, should, they should be smiling. Why aren't the women smiling? Why do they look so mean? <laughs> um, I think you're right. You know, we are used to seeing women, especially women in the public space and media and even in art with these really smiling faces or these inviting faces. And I didn't want that. You know, when I ask women to, you know, pose for me for these images, I tell them to look at me and look at the camera as if they were looking at their harassers. So everything that I just asked you, everything that I just said, you know, tell me what you want to say to your harassers. I want you to look at the camera as if you were speaking that to them now. And so, you know, I I want them to look as if they are people on the street who are speaking back to the people who harass them. And I also want them to look like they're normal selves. You know, I want them to look very regular. I don't ask them to dress up in any type of way. I want these to be images of just regular, everyday folks who are out on the street and have something to say about being out on the street. Um, Tatiana, I really enjoyed reading the book and I actually used to live in Oklahoma City and I thought it was really interesting the way you talked about how harassment plays out in different physical spaces. The way that car culture and condensed urban environments yield different experiences, but still there's that through line that no matter where you're living, whether it happens within the context of, you know, guests coming to your house or you being out in the street, that this harassment was a shared experience. And in your in your time interviewing women about street harassment, how did both of you in that conversation kind of grapple with the like weight of the memories and the experience? Because what I appreciated is people were just so open and honest about how their first encounter with harassment how it kind of changes you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, it does It does change you, and it happens so young for all of us, which is something that um, I found interesting, which was also a thread and a through line between all of the conversations was that it started for us within our youth. And I, I mean, it's an interesting space to be in when I'm in these conversations with women. Um, you know, they're very open, very candid, honest conversations. And I'm sometimes surprised by people being so open and so candid with me. Um, a lot of the time, these are my this is my first time meeting the woman that I'm speaking to. And so for us to both be so open and to sort of be honest about this really sort of shared experience between the two of us, I always find that really interesting still at this point. You know, I'm creating a space where people are able to talk about something that can be very traumatizing, can be very tragic, and happens to us so often. But I feel like we don't often have these in-person spaces to talk about it. So what I notice is that the folks who come to me and participate in the work are really just... I think so open because it is a cathartic space to be in and to be able to talk with someone who empathizes with you, who understands what you're going through, and is also really interested in simply hearing you and listening to you. 
You know, so often when we talk about our experiences with sexual harassment, whether they're not believed or we're feel like we're trying to find some type of validation and it's not really believed what we're saying. So I think to be able to be in conversation with someone and for me to be able to create a space where women are heard and listened to and believed at the same time, I think it's great for the both of us, both people participating in the conversation. Tatiana, one of the things that stands out to me is the way that the posters in particular seem to have become a sort of living art because people will write on the posters and answering back the to you know the um the statement that's on there or trying to you know confront the message of the poster and so then other people will respond to that and then it becomes like a dialogue of strangers on on the art itself so i'm wondering what do you think these conversations on the art have shown you about the project overall? Well, I, I think it's telling me that it's um, having a real life effect on people. Like it, people are having these in real life reactions to the work. Um, it's not just conversations that you see happening online around the work, you know, on social media where people see an image of it and there's comments under it. To have it happen in person in the real world shows me that it's actually having an effect in the environment and in the space that I wanted to have an effect on. That's why the work is out in the street. You know, I, I want people to see these, to respond to them, to have some reaction to them, to hopefully consider them in a way that makes people change their behavior and treat women better in the street. And so to see people writing on it lets me know that it actually is doing that. You know, people are seeing it and responding so strongly that they're actually writing on it. Um, a lot of times what will happen is someone will, you know, deface it by crossing out words or scratching out words or trying to, in some way, change the message of it or eliminate and erase the message of it, the words and the text that are there. So someone else will come back and rewrite the words. Mm-hmm. They'll put it back in there. And so, you know, in that it's it's a response that's happening, you know, um, someone is trying to erase the words and someone else is coming back and standing behind it and rewriting it in there. And I always find that very interesting and fascinating that people are you know, behind the work in such a way that they follow the work and they're behind it and that they're defending it in the street in a way. I think it's, it's fascinating. It's interesting. The first time that it happened, I was kind of taken aback and I didn't like it. I felt like someone's writing on my artwork. But then I realized that, yeah, once it's out in the street, it becomes a part of the world in that way. And so it's open to everything. It's open to weather. It's open to people writing on it. It's open to anything happening to it. And so now I just come to expect it. And now it's just a part of the life of the work. Like you said, it's just something that's going to happen. And I'm always interested in how it happens. Well, I'm incredibly grateful for this because it helped me think about the ways I talk to girls and young women about street harassment. And rather than, you know, kind of understand it as, well, you know, that's bad or like, you know, that's terrible to really think about sitting with the experience and the fact that it's a cumulative experience and to take that really seriously. So mm-hmm. um, I know your book will help a lot of people think about the ways that they not only respond to the experience, but making space to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. I hope so. I hope so. I, I think that's really important to make space to talk about it and to think about it in these really complex, complicated ways and to look at how street harassment fits within the whole of our lives within the entire spectrum of sexual harassment and how we treat women and films. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm grateful that the work can do that and that the book can do that as well, that this book can be a resource to look at street harassment and sexual harassment in a new and a different sort of way. Tatiana, thank you so much for talking with us and for making this book. Sure, thank you all. All right, now it's time for our recommendations. Who'd like to go first? So I would love to recommend a movie that I believe is in wide release at this point. I think it uh, went wide, as they say, on February 14th, Valentine's Day, which is very appropriate. And that is Portrait of a Lady on Fire, a very romantic movie. Was that yours? Yes! (laughs) Well, double the endorsement. That's okay. I can think of something else. Double the endorsement. Uh, Celine Sciamma's lovely film about, I guess it's set in the 18th century. They're very, very vague about things. They really don't tell you where things happen or when things happen. You just kind of glean from the way that they're dressed or what's going on, their general time period. But let's just say it's in long dress time. And it's both very romantic, two women falling in love, but it's also very sort of real. It recognizes the reality of life, that you might have this wonderful, slightly impossible romance on a on a 
kind of a desert island, effectively. It's like being in a pod, but then reality will uh, strike and you will have to deal with that. And I found that actually very, I was really glad of that part of the movie. And it's also about observing people and kind of learning to see them almost, you might say, in their fullness. I think it's maybe counterweight to Love is Blind. It's a different way of, <laughs> of seeing and falling in love, but it's, it's, I highly recommend it. And I know since Christina was also going to recommend it, that she does too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I will say it is different from Love is Blind in that, yeah, the looks kind of come first. Yes, yes. Um, and it's about what you can learn from somebody by looking at mm -hmm. them. Another thing, I mean, I liked so many things about this movie. Um, it's a queer director. At least one of the leads is also she queer. She was her and partner. Fact, the ex of the director. Yes, yes. Yeah. Ugh, which is such a great story. I love that they're still working together. And it for me, that just adds another layer of depth to the queer love story at the heart of this film. Um, somebody else go so I can think of a different thing to recommend. I am going to recommend, as this is our last show of Black History Month, um, an excellent book from 2015 called The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks by Jean Theo Harris. And it looks at Rosa Parks' complicated life, especially before the Montgomery bus boycott, in which she is thinking about issues like armed self-defense. She's investigating the sexual assault of Black women in the South. She's such a fascinating and complicated character of history who unfortunately has been flattened. And so I'm so glad that there are historians like Theo Harris and others who are saying, you know, Rosa Parks has so much depth. And if you read this book and want to know more, the Library of Congress has also digitized her papers and their incredible pictures and letters from her time. There was a picture circulating on Twitter from Stephanie Evans's work on Rosa Parks and her love of yoga. And so I can't think of a better book to explore this month than The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks. Yeah, that was a great photo. Nicole, what do you have? I would like to recommend rewatching the incredible murder mystery series called Murder, She Wrote, starring Angela Lansbury. I've been watching. I've been sick. I've been a little under the weather, and it seems like uh, the medicine worked better when I was watching Murder, <laughs> She Wrote. I don't know. But, you know, I used to watch it when I was a little girl, and I, I love murder mysteries. I love cozy mysteries, so whatever. But I... I watching it now as an adult. This is actually my second rewatch as an mm -hmm. adult. It's on Amazon Prime right now. And I noticed how much Angela was trying to get across that seniors that are elders are active. They're still very sensual people because Jessica Fletcher constantly had, you know, some men trying to court her while she was solving mysteries and maybe pointing <laughs> out that they were the ones that were killing people. These men were just like, you know, are you over your dead husband yet? You know, they were they were really making moves on Jessica Fletcher and the townspeople of Cabot Cove. Hilarious, funny, ridiculous. Again, just very have They had very active social lives. They were riding their bicycles all around, you know, so they're just giving you this really I don't know, just a really fun, vibrant look at the way older people live their lives when they're not killing people. <laughs> um, but it's just it's just really fun. So when you like get past the mystery of it and you look and see that there, you know, people have lives that continue beyond the age of 50. Uh, I think that's really important. And there's like this one. Uh, one scene that I remember, uh, one of the town, uh, she's the real estate agent, and she had been uh, having an affair with one of the police officers. And she jokes that he would come and like make sure that her cat was okay. And I was just like, oh my God, they're making these <laughs> kinds of jokes on murder, she wrote? What? How naughty. Um, but it's just really fun. And also, it's just very soothing. A procedural is very soothing when you just, mm -hmm. you just really don't want to like keep up with too many twists and turns and trying to figure out who's sleeping with who and all this kind of mm -hmm. stuff. Who's the father of this child and who gave, you know, all that kind of stuff. You just want something kind of simple and you know that's going to, uh, you know, yes, a little formulaic, but that's soothing and, and you know, 
it just really works and you know that the uh it'll be solved within 45 minutes and you can just wait for the next thing to happen so i highly recommend going back and rewatching murder she wrote as an adult and recognizing uh you know what angela lansbury and her cast were trying to say about older people and yeah just having a, a really nice soothing time solving murders <laughs> Oh my God, that sounds so good. I've never watched oh my God. Wrote and oh, I'm it's absolutely so good. going to now. Okay, so in addition to Portrait of a Lady on Fire, I would like to recommend an opinion piece in the New York Times by Britt Marling, the actress, writer, director. It's called I Don't Want to Be the Strong Female Lead. I'm a big Britt Marling fan, not just because we share an alma mater, but because she has written herself and directed herself in so many fantastic roles. And she's spoken a lot about the fact that that wasn't actually what she, you know, went to Hollywood to do. She was going to be an actress and, you know, maybe she would have found herself as a writer, but she felt that there weren't enough roles out there for the kinds of characters she wanted to play. She speaks about that a bit in here, but then moves on to other kinds of roles that you would think women would want to play, the quote-unquote strong female lead. And she pulls apart why she finds those to be sort of just as flattening as the sexy woman who gets killed in a horror movie. So she writes, It would be hard to deny that there's nutrition to be drawn from any narrative that gives women agency and voice in a world where they are most often without both. But the more I acted the strong female lead, the more I became aware of the narrow specificity of the character's strengths, physical prowess, linear ambition, focused rationality, masculine modalities of power. I really appreciated this piece, and it 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 gave voice to something that I had felt in the back of my head but wasn't sure how to articulate. So I highly recommend reading it for people who love women in film and strong women in film. It's called I Don't Want to Be the Strong Female Lead. All right, that's our show. Thank you to Lindsay Cradwell who produced this episode, to Rachel Allen, our production assistant, and Rosemary Belson, who recorded us in D.C. For Marsha Chatlin, Nicole Perkins, and June Thomas, I'm Christina Cotarucci. Thanks for listening. 